turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're really going to take part two of last night's sermon. Um, I really had one sermon that had two points. I made one of the two points last night. You'll have to indulge me as um, the rest of you who were here last night as I give a brief introduction just to catch up people who were not here so they have some context for the second point of last night's sermon they didn't hear, right? So Acts chapter 7, we're going to start reading in verse 54 once again. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That's the Sanhedrin, and the Jewish crowds are enraged and grinding their teeth at Stephen, who had just preached to them. But he, that being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together, we ask that you would, by your spirit, teach us about your son from your word. That this word would not fall on hard hearts, blinded eyes, or deaf ears, but that it would fall on the kind of soil that produces great fruit. Abundant fruit that we would love your word and rejoice in it. That we'd be made different as we reflect on who Jesus is and how you graciously sent him for us. We give you thanks this morning and ask that you would guide us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last night, last night in the sermon, I said that Christmas is not a time to pretend that there is no sin and suffering and death. Christmas is not a time to pretend that, but rather that Christmas really is a a time to rejoice and proclaim that Jesus came to conquer those damning realities for you. Sin and death are what make Christmas necessary. Further, last night we looked at the vision of Jesus that Stephen saw. And I said, in this passage, we'll see this vision of Jesus that Stephen saw. And then after Stephen's vision of Jesus, we will see Stephen's response to his martyrdom. Really, a response to an unjust martyrdom brought against Stephen in which his actions imitate Christ. So we'll see both the vision of Christ and we'll see Stephen imitating Christ in his death. And as we continue to do that, we're going to learn more about Jesus. As Stephen's vision of Jesus, as with, sorry, as with Stephen's vision of Jesus, Stephen's response to his martyrdom will also help us learn about Jesus. So here's my contention on this Christmas morning, central contention this morning. Stephen's actions demonstrate to us, Stephen's actions 
Stephen's imitation of Christ, demonstrate to us that he trusted in the Jesus who graciously forgives his sinful enemies. Hear that? Last night, Stephen's vision of Jesus showed us that Stephen trusted in the Jesus who brings justice against his enemies and vindication for his people. So he saw Jesus in his vision as the judge standing against his enemies and on behalf of his people. And this morning, we're going to look at the second part of that, which is Stephen's imitation of Christ after that vision, in which he sees the Jesus who graciously forgives his sinful enemies. So look with me at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, I want you to notice the parallels between Stephen's martyrdom and Jesus' crucifixion. For I believe Stephen is teaching us about Jesus as he follows Jesus' model. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take first really two primary similarities. Now, there are loads of similarities actually here between the cross and Stephen's martyrdom, but I want to focus on two of the similarities this morning between the cross of Jesus and the martyrdom of Stephen. And then I want to focus on two differences between the cross of Jesus, that scene, and the martyrdom of Stephen. So two similarities, two differences. So let's Let's look first at the crucifixion scene and look at the similarities. So turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Hold your hand in Acts 7 and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And verse 33, same author, giving us the account of Jesus' crucifixion. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to pick up in verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the first similarity. Stephen says, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now continue on. And they cast lots to divide his garments And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, in other words, that's noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now, now there's so much material there to deal with. But I want you to pick up on a couple of the similarities. One, in Luke 23, 46, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Acts 7, 59, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Very similar ways in which these two men entrust their souls to the Lord at their death. Both the Lord Jesus and Stephen are entrusting their souls to God at their death. Both of them are. They're dying with full awareness that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They both trust that God is with them in their death. Both of them. Further, the account says that they're similar in that Jesus prays in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, while Stephen prays in Acts 7, 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, both Jesus and Stephen are not only both committing their souls to the Lord's care at their death, knowing God is with them, but they are both appealing to God for the forgiveness of their enemies. Both of them are. Stephen and Jesus, both appealing to God for the forgiveness of their enemies. They both want to see their enemies forgiven. And you might ask how Stephen's appeal is an appeal for forgiveness, because he never actually uses the word forgive them, right? Well, well, you have to understand the nature of what forgiveness is. What is forgiveness? When someone sins against you, they've incurred a debt with you. They've incurred a debt with you. It's like you go to a bank and the bank offers you loan forgiveness, right? They, they forgive your debt. Now, I know that doesn't happen anymore. You just declare bankruptcy and off we go, right? But you have a debt that they've incurred with you. To forgive them is to say, I will absorb your debt against myself. I will pay your debt myself. That's what it means to forgive them. I will, to not forgive them really is to force them to pay the debt. You've sinned against me. Now you're forced to pay the debt. I will not forgive you. I will not absorb the debt myself. You will pay me for this debt. And there's a variety of ways they'll pay. If it's financial, you'll ask for money. If it's emotional, you'll take it out of them emotionally. You know what that looks like. So when Stephen says, do not hold this sin against them, he's asking the Lord to absorb the debt for them. Do not credit this sin to their account. Absorb it for them. Don't make them pay for it. In other words, forgive them, Lord. Forgive them. Now, and I want you to think of that. Stephen is in the middle of being unjustly killed. You know what a stoning looks like? Drag him out of the city. It says they took off their cloaks. You know why? All the better to throw rocks when you're unencumbered by these big cloaks. And they pick up the largest stones they can find. And they begin to cast them at them and throw them on them and drop them on the person. And they essentially bludgeon them with stones to death. Stephen is on his knees being bludgeoned to death with rocks in front of an unjust crowd asking that the Lord would not hold their sin against them. Asking the Lord to forgive these wicked people. Now before we press further into the implications of that, I want to look at the two differences because there are two distinct differences and then I want to come back to the implications of this. 
Let's take the difference in the way they ask for forgiveness first. Notice Jesus says, forgive them, and then this next phrase is what? In other words, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. Next phrase is, for they know not what they do. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. They're <clears throat> Stephen says, do not hold this sin against them. He never says they're ignorant or they know not what they do. Now, both of them are essentially asking for, for forgiveness. They're both asking that God would not credit this offense to the offenders, but rather that the Lord would absorb the cost himself. However, Stephen never says they know not what they do. Jesus says that, but Stephen doesn't. So why the change? Why the change? Well, here's my best shot at an answer. I think at this point, Stephen's Jewish audience has heard the gospel proclamation numerous times. They've heard about the resurrection of the Christ. They've seen the signs being done by the apostles. They've heard the preaching over and over again from both Jesus and the apostles. And now he's declaring that they're no longer really ignorant, but intentional in their act. In other words, there's a change here in Acts. In Acts 3.17, when Peter's preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem, he actually says to them, I know that you know not what you do, that you're ignorant of what you did in the killing of the Messiah. But now it seems that that has changed. It can no longer be claimed. The Sanhedrin knows full well the gospel realities and the gospel message, and they're acting in full knowledge. And to some extent, Stephen's appeal is made even more remarkable by that fact. His appeal for forgiveness is made even more remarkable. Even though these wicked men crucified the Messiah and persecuted his 12 apostles and are now killing one of the seven, and even though they are now doing this in full knowledge of their sin, he still appeals to the Lord to forgive them. Still, even as Stephen is being brutally and unjustly stoned to death, even as he sees, now think of this, even as he sees a vision of Jesus standing in judgment on his enemies, that's what it means when he stands at the right hand of God, that he is the Danielic son of man who rules and reigns over the nations, who will vindicate his people and execute justice on his enemies, that he is the Davidic king of Psalm 110, who will sit at the right hand of God until he makes all his enemies his footstool, that he is the Lord standing in Isaiah 3.13 to judge the peoples. And even as he sees him standing in judgment on Israel, even there, he prays for their forgiveness. This is the moment of all moments for any of us where we now have every vindication, I would think, in our human minds that this, these men are unjustly crucifying me, killing me, putting me to death. Crucifying is not quite accurate, but murdering him unjustly. These men are not only unjustly murdering me, but I see Jesus standing in vindication of me and showing me that they deserve justice. And even there, he doesn't say, give them justice, Lord. You know you'd want to, right? You see a grave injustice against you? How many of you, when a grave injustice happens to you, in which you are innocent, think to yourself, 
Forgive them, Father. Now, you might be able to get there if you think they might be ignorant. Well, forgive them, Father. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. You might even be able to get there once you say, forgive them, Father. You know, I know they know what they're doing, but they're blind in their sin. And then, then you might begin to continue to struggle. And, but you see a vision of Jesus standing where Jesus is declaring prophetically to you that his judgment is upon them. You don't think at that point your heart leaps with vindication and justice. And you think, get them. And what does Stephen pray? Do not hold this sin against them. As he sees Jesus standing to judge them, he appeals to Jesus for their forgiveness. And we may wonder what drives, drives, sorry, what drives that kind of love and grace. And I want to turn to that in a minute, but I want to look at the second major distinction between Stephen's death and Jesus' death before we do that. In both of Jesus' prayers, he addresses who? The Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In both of Stephen's prayers, he addresses Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. He commits his soul to the Lord Jesus. He asks the Lord Jesus to forgive his murders. In other words... The Stephen Jesus saw in his vision and trusted, the the Jesus whom Stephen is now imitating is the Jesus who is dwelling in the temple of heaven. He looks to heaven and sees the glory of God dwelling in the temple in heaven. He is the Jesus who is the great high priest king, the Jesus who rules and judges the nations, the Jesus to whom you can entrust your soul. The Jesus who forgives sin. Messiah, Jesus, the Lord, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, the Son of God, of the same essence of the Father, equal in power and glory. Holy, innocent, undefiled, the Davidic king that was promised, the Danielic king who will come, the son of man who will come and rule in God's kingdom, the seed of the woman, the seed or offspring of Abraham. He is everything, the substance to which every shadow and type in the Old Testament pointed. And Stephen sees him there as the divine messianic king. And he says, I trust my soul to you. You are the one who forgives my enemies. And I drive at that to say that we need to learn, as Stephen has learned, that Jesus is the one who can reconcile us to the Father. He's the only one. He is the one who mercifully brings reconciliation between God and man. And Christmas, Christmas reminds us that Jesus came for a purpose. And that purpose was to bring reconciliation between God and And man, in Christ, God did not count our sins against us, but took them on himself and paid the debt of sin for us. In other words, Jesus is our reconciliation with God. Jesus is our forgiveness of sins. And we need to understand this. And I I want you to understand something even a step further. God did not need to save us. Hear that? He did not need to save us. God's glory is not improved by us. 
He is eternally glorious. He's infinitely glorious. His glory is not improved by us. He was not obligated to be gracious to us. He is not indebted to us in any way to forgive us sins. He promised man in the garden, Genesis 2, if you sin, you will die. Death and hell will be the consequence. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. In other words, eternal separation from God. And God would have been entirely just, I want you to hear this, entirely just to condemn us to hell in that instant. But he does something remarkable. While announcing the curse for sin, and in the moment at which he could have pronounced that we are all justly damned with no hope of retrieval, in that instant he announced the gospel promise. The Lord promised to send the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and save us. And the rest of the biblical story is the story of the Lord working out the fulfillment of that promise that's being progressively revealed to send a son, a man, his own son, to save us. And Christmas is the announcement that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? Provide us a nice Christmas nostalgic experience? To do what? To redeem those who were under the law to redeem us. And here's perhaps the most remarkable portion of this scene with Stephen. Israel is not only justly condemned with all mankind in the fall of Adam, but Israel has been given God's gracious revelation of himself in the law of the Old Testament and in the tabernacle. And even there they sinned. And they not only failed to keep God's law, and they not only blasphemed God's temple, but they murdered the promised Messiah to whom all had pointed, the seed of the woman who came to save them. And as Stephen sees Jesus stand and declare judgment on Israel as they unjustly kill one of Jesus' servants, Stephen there prays for the Lord Jesus to forgive them. He knew that as the Lord stood at the right hand to judge, I want you to hear this, as he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God as the just king, The one who asks of me and the nations, I'll give the nations to you as your heritage. That, that one who's standing there in judgment of all peoples. Stephen knew in that instant as Jesus stood that the Lord's grace and mercy is able to triumph over his justice. Stephen knew as the great Puritan Stephen Sharnock said, the Lord was under no obligation to put off the robes of a judge for the heart of a father and to erect a mercy seat above his tribunal of justice under no obligation. But the Lord's goodness, the Lord's grace, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's love motivated him to do it. Stephen knew the Lord did erect a mercy seat in the Old Testament and that Christ fulfills everything that mercy seat points to is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And folks, here's the good news that you need to grab hold of. There is nothing in you that elicits this kind of response in God. You hear that? Nothing in me, nothing in you that makes God say, I must respond with grace and mercy and love. 
The Lord does this not because you earned it, but because that's the kind of God he is. He is love. He is grace. He is mercy. He is good. He doesn't just have those things. He is those things. He is in himself. He's not just those things in response to his people. He is those things in himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That glorious text says nothing about, for man so loved the earned, of, earned the love of God, for man so sought after God, for man so merited God's favor. It just says simply, for God so loved the world, his enemies, that he gave his only begotten son. And that's what Stephen's imitation of his Lord tells us about the Lord Jesus. And that's what Christmas cries out to us. Stephen knew that Jesus came for this purpose. And Jesus accomplished this purpose at the cross. And that Stephen could trust Jesus with his soul. Here's the question. First application. It's just two, quickly. Have you entrusted the Lord Jesus with your soul? See, he's the only one who can bear the weight of your soul who can bear the weight of your sins. He's it. You've sinned against the holy God, an infinite God. You've incurred an infinite debt you can never pay. He's the only one who can bear the weight of your soul and your sins, Jesus. That's it, the God-man. He alone, on the cross, paid for them. He's the only one who can bear it. Your children can't bear the weight of your soul or your sins. Your spouse can't bear the weight of your soul or your sins. Your damnable good works cannot bear the weight of your soul or your sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Have you trusted your soul to him? Have you put it in his care? Have you looked to him? Do you see in him all his glorious grace and trust in him? If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're not someone looking to him, I appeal to you as God making his appeal through man. Be reconciled to God. And the only place to find reconciliation with the Father is in Jesus Christ. It's why we celebrate Christmas, look to him and be saved. You will be forgiven your sins. God will absorb the debt. In fact, you will find he did absorb the debt at the cross in the person of his son, Jesus. And here's the second application for you believers. Stephen didn't just want this outcome of forgiveness of his sins for himself. He wanted this outcome for other people, even his enemies. Not just his family and friends and neighbors and coworkers he likes, but even the people who are picking up stones to kill him. What drove that in Stephen? Now, I don't want you to walk away here from thinking you should feel really guilty because you don't have that kind of love in your heart for your enemies. But you should feel guilty for that. I mean, and, but go to Christ with that guilt. But I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that somehow you can go home and self-generate that kind of love. That somehow you can just, you know, gin it up within yourself to love the way that Jesus loves, to love the way that Stephen loved. You can't. This love that Stephen has is something the Lord did in him. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 5.5 5 when he says that the Holy Spirit 
pours out the love of Jesus into our hearts. That's not your love for Jesus that's poured out in your heart. That's the Spirit pouring into your heart Jesus' love for you. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. That explains how he can do this. He has the love of Christ poured out into his heart. The love of God is poured out of his heart. He knows that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knows that for himself, and he knows it's only hope for his enemies. And he knows that because the Spirit has poured out his love into his heart. Paul, speaking about that kind of, says this, kind of thing, says this, and I want to finish with this. For the love of Christ compels us. That's Christ's love for you, not your love of Christ. Christ's love for you compels us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. He died for all. Now listen, catch this, that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's what we proclaim to others. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your Son and his abundant kindness to us, for your love, which motivated you to send him for us, for the grace he has purchased for us, for your Spirit in applying that grace to us so that we are united to your Son through faith and have him and all that is his. We are thankful that Christmas proclaims to us that God does not leave us in our sin and death, but that you, Father, pursued us from the time of our fall to the time of your Son's coming, and even now as your Spirit proclaims the gospel of your Son through his church to every tribe and tongue and nation. We pray that many would be saved and that we would give great thanks for him and continue to proclaim him and worship him this Christmas and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.